So we're going to be talking about Science Fiction Research Event Horizon, and I'm half hoping I get it wrong because I have SB Divya with me today. On I should be writing Season 19, Episode 12, I think. I'm bad at counting. Well, I should be writing. Hi there, everybody. Welcome to I Should Be Writing. This is the podcast for wannabe fiction writers, streamed live on Twitch Thursdays, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and uh, then put edited and put into your podcast feed, where any all fine podcasts are found. I'm Mer Lafferty. I've been doing this show for a very long time, and I'm also a science fiction writer with uh, seven books out. Why can't I remember that number? It's not it's not a big number. I don't understand. But anyway. Um, I have with me my old friend and, uh, shiny new booked author. That's a verb, right? Yeah, totally. Sure. New booked author, not new author, mm-hmm. but new booked author, uh, SB Divya. Hi, Divya. How are you? Hi, Mer. I'm awesome. Good. And for the record, I miss you all too. Yeah. Yeah. Skate Divya pod. and I used to do a uh, skate pod, a co-editing jobs together and, um, I'm allowed to still love Valerie. Uh, the kids are asleep in chat and also Miss Divya at the same time because human emotions are complex. <laughs> Absolutely. But um, yeah, we're going to be talking about your new book and uh, research and new authors and all that kind of thing. But first we need to talk about uh, what we've been up to. I try to keep myself accountable. I went on a Pretty bad downward spiral on Tuesday. I was trying to work on my new um, novella. Then I realized it's a weird feeling. I don't know if you get this, Davia, when there's the I suck feeling that every author has at some point in time. And then there's the wait a minute. I'm doing this wrong. And it's not, it's not an I suck. It's like, I'm really going in the wrong direction. And sometimes it's hard to realize which emotion is in which camp. And I think on Tuesday, I was feeling the I suck, but then I realized that I was at least right that I was going in the wrong direction. So I kind of did a lot of refocusing. And so I haven't actually written much, but um, I did some research. I talked to Preemie. Um, and I think I'm better off now. I still haven't written, but that's due to migraines and other stuff. But, um, unexpected orthopedist trip as well. But good, good mental work this week. A little bit emotional too, but no actual words. So I'm not real happy about that. Um, <laughs> Tivia, do you want to tell us what you're working on, even if it's just my next project? Um, I can, I can talk about it. And I will also admit that I have not had new words all month Ooh. because I had a book come out. Well, yes. And, um, 
I got to this point, so I'm writing the second book in the Alloy era universe. Uh, it is not a direct sequel, it's just linked. And I got about 90% of the way, I think, roughly, when um, book release stuff started happening. And I thought I could just write through it and finish it. And when that didn't end up being practical, I decided, okay, this is my break, and then I'm going to reread. Because I started drafting this in August. And uh, let me just say my memory is not what it used to be. And so I was like, I kind of need a refresher on my own book at this point. And like you, I was in that space of maybe it's total crap. This is the first full length novel I've written since having COVID brain. And, um, and so I was like, ah, maybe it just makes no sense. And there's no coherence. I mean, I have an outline, but who knows, like maybe the whole thing is just trash. So I figured I would reread it. And then about three quarters through my reread. And uh, I don't think it's trash. Oh, so relieved. Um, it definitely needs work, but it's not like a giant mess, which um, with my first novel, Machinehood, uh, I knew it was a giant mess at the end of the first draft. It was, it really was. It like multiple rewrites to get that book working. This one, I think it's okay. Um, it's very different from book one, but that's kind of intentional. And so that's where I'm at right now. So I'm hoping to finish the reread this week and then I'm going to write the ending. This is something I've done with short stories in the past. It's like I get to kind of like close to the climax or just past the climax. And then I kind of run out of steam. So I'll wait and then I'll go back and I'll reread the story. And then I'll figure out what the climax and or the ending really needs to be. Because otherwise, sometimes I get there and I'm just like, yeah, it's not all together. But it's like, I'm just going to write something. And then I end up rewriting it. So so I'm hoping it works um, with something as long as a book. And hopefully this means I won't be rewriting the, the last 10% a bunch of times. Going back to the machinehood thing, I wonder, how, how did you deal with that emotionally? Because I had the problem in 2021 where I had two projects I was working on and the editor sent them back for extensive rewrites. Both the editors did on both projects at the same time. And it was like ego blow after ego blow. And I know I'm not supposed to feel that with edits because it's editorial process is a regular normal thing. On the other hand, I'd never had to do that much rewriting before. And it was a big blow to my ego. And I was wondering, did you accept the machinehood rewrites with better <laughs> plum Thanks. than me? The, the first round, so the first round, I just sent it to my agent. We hadn't sold the book yet, so there wasn't even an editor involved. And my agent basically wrote back and said, I agree with you that it's a hot mess. Here's how I think you could fix it. If you want to, she literally said, if you, if you want to do the work, I think I can sell it. And, but she was kind of like, but I understand if you don't. And I was just kind of like, oh, God. But it was my first novel and um, my spouse at the time had read the draft and, you know, not being a professional editor, he thought it wasn't that bad. And he was like, and really it was, he thought it was a really important book about artificial intelligence and timely. And so he was like, you can't give up on this. It's too good. So, so I grit my teeth and I, I spent, gosh, almost a year 
revising it, went back, you know, I went to beta readers and everything before I sent it back to my agent. And then she wrote back and she was like, yeah, so you fixed a lot of stuff, but it still needs, you know, these eight paragraphs worth of things. And I was like, that was when it hit me harder because I thought I really wanted to be done that time. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, God, no, I'm so sick of this book. The last thing I want to do is write it again. Um, yeah. So, no, I mean, I don't think I ever take an edit letter with Grace when it first arrives because everybody wants the dream of it's beautiful and perfect and you just have to fix these five paragraphs and we're good to go. You know, you misspelled it once. You put an apostrophe in a wrong place. People make mistakes. Uh, Otherwise, yeah, it's you know, perfection. It's, it's fine. Exactly. Like, your genius shines through and, and mm -hmm. off we go, you know, to print. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> never the case, you yeah. know, when eight pages of notes land on your on your virtual desktop and, and then you want to cry. And they always take a few days to just process that grief. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and breathe through it and recognize that uh, now at least I'm like, I've been through it enough times that I'm like, okay, I know how this goes. Mm -hmm. Kind of like, not to be gross, but it's kind of like a menstrual cycle. Like you just, you know that mm -hmm. you have to just go through that, those stages and, and then you'll come out eventually with a book. That, which is not related to the menstrual cycle. Which is not, yes, right. no. Um, I, I mean, there might be somebody out there who, who produces excellent works of fiction. This sounds like a Connie Willis short story, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so right. <laughs> uh, that, that's what I've been up to. And uh, Divya has been launching a book and getting ready to finish book two. Uh, we're going to talk about good news. If anybody has any good news to share in the chat, and if you're listening to this later on the feed and you have some good news you want to share, please email me at mightymer at gmail.com and um, we will list it on the next live stream. And remember that rejections count as good news because it means you're a working writer and it sucks, but you're doing what other writers who are too afraid to do it you're doing what they're not, so you're closer than you would be if you weren't submitting. Or if you want to be like all fancy like Wayne Gretzky, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. But um, he's probably trademarked that by now, and I just did a <laughs> violation. But anyway, one new rejection for Guinega. Congratulations. Yay. Well done. And the rejection count goes up. We're at 27 now. I'm sorry. We have a moment in chat. <laughs> Rudinell says, just be nice when talking about AI today or you'll make your PC mad at you. An uncle of mine is convinced that's why he has so many PC problems. He's always griping about technology. He's convinced his PC is listening and making his life miserable. <laughs> Okie dokie. <laughs> Things are definitely listening now. That that's much is true. 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 Uh, under the computers have been making our lives miserable, I would say, long before we had AI That's true. at the level we do today. Congratulations to Underpope for three rejections since last week. Awesome. Well done. And um, so, yeah, and, you know, if you've got other kinds of good news, we'll hear that, too. Would love to. Just... Uh, try to remind people every week that rejections do count and we do like that rejection number to go up. 
We are now at 30. Yeah, I know people who will celebrate uh, when they hit certain rejection numbers. Because why not? I celebrate them all. Because it at least means I'm trying. Considering Mm -hmm. how how often I talk myself out of doing something neat. Just the fact if I try and fail, it's... I've discovered that the rejection feels better than the what if. At this stage in my life. Yeah. So, you know, I, I tried for a grant, a podcasting grant, last summer? Summer before? I can't remember. Anyway, um, and it was like for mid-career podcasters, like you're supposed to have lots of experience, and then this will help you get to the next level, etc. And I thought, that's perfect for me, here we go. And I didn't get it, but I had that feeling of, well, I tried. I did the best I could, and if I hadn't, I would wonder all the time. So, that's... uh. That's what I tell myself anyway. Yeah. I mean, there's the other saying, right? Can't win the lottery if you don't buy a ticket. Yeah. Favorite way I've heard it is a person who has never failed has never tried. Applies to just about everything. Yes, true. (laughs) See, offender. Uh, Printers will be our strongest allies. They don't work well with computers. That's fair. (laughs) they They don't think they work well with people either. Um. Divya, do you have any news to share? Uh, well, I have this book that just came out. Well, that's a good segue <laughs> to our next uh, section. Uh, that's yes. my big news right now. Yes, tell us about the... Dude, I, you know, when I got the book for the blurb, of course, I saw it on my Kindle, which is a Kindle Paperwhite, which is black and white. And so I did not know how gorgeous the cover would be. Please oh, hold it up again. Thank you. Yeah, all right. You don't need to see my face. See the awesome book. Yes. Yes. So tell us about Meru. Well, so Meru and this uh, cover image is uh, from a planet that is the first discovered about a thousand years from now that is mostly hospitable to human beings um, relative to pretty much every other planet we'd come across till that point in terms of atmosphere, climate, and terrain. And it kicks off a series of events that involve a human um, who has a lot more ambition than humankind is supposed to have in this future and a post-human alloy. So I'm going to point to these behind me because I have visual aids now. The human is Jayanti, and this is a portrait of her that I had commissioned. And the alloy is Vaha. This is a portrait of Zur that I had commissioned. And um, in this far future, basically, because in the intervening thousand years between now and when the story takes place, humankind has managed to successfully destroy the, the environment on Earth and had a terrible time terraforming Mars, they have sort of consigned themselves to fixing and inhabiting the planet that they have and letting their post-human descendants, the alloys, go out into space and live more freely. So when this planet is discovered, um, Jayanti and some others kick off a movement to see if uh, humankind can be allowed to have a second home. And that is basically the, the rest of the story. But tell how they travel. Oh, all right. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, in the in the book blurb, they talk about 
uh, a human woman and her alloy pilot. And it makes it sound, you know, when, when we hear the word pilot, we think of a person sitting in a craft and steering it. Um, this is the alloy pilot and their body is the craft. So there is no spaceship in this world. It's just, it's ginormous, you know, 150 meters long person who has special organs within uh, person of persons. There's, there's a whole class of alloy pilots who are able to ferry smaller alloys and human beings um, inside of themselves in specialized genetically engineered organs. And um, I invented some new physics for this nice. world, yes. Um, uh, so Mer and I were talking before, but be before I studied computational neuroscience and artificial intelligence, I actually started in astrophysics because that was my thing. So it was fun to think about um, dark matter and dark energy and why the universe is accelerating in its expansion. And I thought, what if there's a fifth force, you know, fifth fundamental force? And we can genetically engineer people to harness that as energy for space travel. So your body, you know, needs only the fuel of, uh, of food. And in the case of alloys, sunlight, and they harness this new field to travel through space. So that's pretty cool. I really, um, it's taken me far too long to realize this about myself, but one of my favorite things, either reading or writing about science fiction is taking the grand, huge concepts and putting them into the real life application. And I remember there's a scene discussing the concept of privacy when you realize when you have your private moments getting dressed or hydrate, uh, Hi, doing hygiene, um, you don't realize that what if your house had eyes? Would you be comfortable with that? And you actually do address that. And I thought that was a nice touch in taking the alien and making it at least understandable to the 21st century reader. Right. Relatable. Yes. Yeah, there's a lot in this book that... Um challenges the reader. And I think there's certain types of science fiction readers who love that, who love being in a place that's very, very strange yeah. and having to kind of learn about it and get comfortable with it. Um, there, there have definitely been some readers who have hated it too and who are just like, too much world building, too weird, so many words I don't understand. And they <laughs> Too many words in this book. Come on. <laughs> yeah, because I, you know, I do. I've, I've created a whole new set of terminology. I really, it was very intentional, though. I wanted a thousand years from now to feel strange. I wanted alloys and post-humans um, to feel strange. And, you know, you, you have a human perspective on it from Jayanti. But even for her, like, a lot of it's just you know, that's just life and how it is. And so the, the reader does definitely get thrown into the deep end um, from chapter one. And, uh, and you're gonna, gonna take you a bit to learn how to swim. Yeah. <laughs> but hopefully it's worth the effort. Hey, um, they let Gene Wolf do it. They should let you do it. Yeah, I was thinking a near, uh, 
more recent example is Nine Fox Gambit, Yoon Ha Lee's novel, mm-hmm. which, you know, I know a lot of people bailed out in chapter one because they were just like, I do not understand what is happening. But uh, but if you persist, it's so worth it. Yeah, it's that was a challenging book for me, I will admit. Um, but yeah, I, I love the fact that you made up your own physics because that takes me to our main topic, which is... I am not a scientist. I'm a science fiction writer. I read a lot of science fiction. I read layman's... I read science translated for layman uh, research, but I am not a scientist. And um, what's funny is with Six Wakes, I heavily researched some space travel concepts and didn't care about the cloning at all. I just hand-waved that crap. Just, Just... you know, hand wave, like, like decorating the Charlie Brown Christmas tree. Um, and the one bad review I got, they commented on how crappy the space travel research was. Didn't even mention the cloning. And I'm like, what, what, what do you want from me? I actually, I talked to astrophysicists about that. I'm like, is this concept workable? But no. So, uh, and I think one of the problems for new authors, especially in genre, is how much research do I do? Because a lot of times research can turn into a form of procrastination. You can tell yourself, oh, I can't start until I understand this concept or that concept. And so knowing the history you and I have had, Divi and I worked very well together. We, we may not have with these two bits of our history, but you know, I'm not a scientist. Divya is, and so we would often come at stories from different angles, and I think that worked together really well for us, instead of us disagreeing on a lot of them. Although Divya, I don't even remember what story it was, but Divya did say, I want this story and I will fight you. Um, <laughs> so I, I don't I, remember what it was anymore either, but yeah. Yes. And, and I liked it, so those. that was good. <laughs> it didn't have to fight. <laughs> but um, with with science as your background, how do you approach research and how do you know when is enough or when is at least enough to start writing? Right. Um, those are excellent, excellent questions. I mean, I have definitely the event horizon problem where if I'm not careful, I can lose days and days and days just to researching various aspects of the science because I love the topic and I love reading about it and I love thinking about it. And, uh, but at some point, you know, you have to write the story. So (laughs) the way I generally approach it is um, I have kind of sort of a, I guess an, an ongoing research process Mm -hmm. where I have a a few newsletters I subscribe to. So they land in my email box. So everything I will skim through them um, and see what's interesting and, you know, give myself a certain amount of time to follow the links and read the articles, at least some portion of the articles, just to kind of keep tabs on what's happening in technology and science at the forefronts of, of both. Um, So there's always kind of, I guess, background fodder in my head. And when it comes time to writing the story, I try to be story and character centric. So it's like, what is the story I want to tell? 
and who are the characters and, and what are their stories in this world? And then I try to think creatively of how do I shape the world around these things um, in a way that makes sense. I like my science to make sense if I'm writing science fiction. It is definitely sciencey science fiction. Um, it doesn't have to be, but I enjoy it. So I, I take that route. So for example, with space travel in Meru, right? I knew that the central conflict was between these humans and post-humans and a certain element of humanity wanting to go to this other planet with themes of environmentalism, et cetera. So I started thinking, well, if this, if this society is one where they want to do the least harm to everything in the universe, they're not going to want nuclear fuel. They're not going to want um, to be mining asteroids and destroying planets you know, on the way to exploring space. So what do we have that's clean energy, right? We, we can split hydrogen, I'm sorry, we can split water into hydrogen and oxygen and we can have sunlight. Um, and those, you know, those two things can work in tandem. And then my physics part was like, that is nowhere near enough to get us outside the solar system. Like that's barely, that's not even enough to get us off the surface of the earth most of the time. So, so I needed something else. And I wanted something unique. And I, again, with the background chatter was like, there's this big mystery in physics right now, which is, um, you know, we've always known that the universe is expanding, but we thought it was expanding ever more slowly, right? That it's decelerating because gravity is pulling all the matter back towards itself. And eventually we'll have, you know, the big crunch after the big bang, because everything will, will eventually, it's like a, like a balloon. Eventually it stops inflating and then it'll gradually deflate and collapse. But now uh, our instruments, at least some, are indicating that the balloon is growing faster and faster and faster. So it's like, what what is pushing it outward? And we don't know. And that's where dark matter and dark energy come in. And so knowing what I already knew about physics, I was like, well, stuff happens in physics that upends our understanding of the model of the universe all the time. So maybe there's a fifth force and voila, that solves my space travel problem. Cause now I have a field that grants these beings enough energy that they can get out past the solar system and keep going. Cause it, cause this is a thing that pervades the entire universe. And so that's kind of, I guess that's kind of how my research process works in some ways. Um, Meru also has a lot of, genetic engineering. And it's funny, you're, you know, your thing about cloning versus space travel, because everybody likes space travel. And they I think they like to think of so, themselves as experts in it, because they're like, I can do the equations, you know, for for um, speed and acceleration and time and distance. So I can check your math and I can blah, blah, blah. Like I can check how much fuel you have and does that provide enough energy? Like they know just enough physics to be dangerous, right? Mm -hmm. And to be critics. Most of these people have not spent time in biology classes or reading up on molecular biology and genetics. So they can't pick apart, you know, your cloning process. They can't pick apart, well, how did you get their memories out of their head in the first place and back into it? Like my questions <laughs> with six weeks. 
<laughs> like, are they constantly streaming data from their brain? Like, that's a lot of bandwidth, Merle. <laughs> How are they doing that? Where does it all get stored? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I know. <laughs> so, so for the genetic portion of this book, um, the main character, Jayanthi, has uh, sickle cell disease, which, you know, is very rooted in DNA. And, um, and she wants to be a genetic engineer. So I had to kind of brush up on that. Luckily, I guess my undergraduate studies covered biology and engineering and neuroscience and computer science It kind of sat at the intersection of these different fields. And I did physics and astronomy. So I've covered a lot of areas of science. And I'm, again, comfortable enough in any of them to be, you know, a little bit dangerous. But to delve into journal articles and at least read the abstracts or the introductions and get a rough idea. And so I looked up some stuff on sickle cell disease. I looked up what genes you have to tweak to take care of certain things. And I put all that in the book, but I don't expect a lot of people to call me out on the the parts that I hand waved a little bit mm-hmm. because again, most people don't they don't pay as much attention in biology as they do in physics if they're they're science fiction readers. Right. So what do you say um, for non-scientists, what would you recommend for a research limitation? Knowing that it is a tool of procrastination for many people. Um, And of course we're talking vaguely because you don't know what there's how how deep they need to go for what they're writing but still um is there is there a point where you would say someone needs to stop yeah i would actually say just set a timer honestly i mean we all know i think that maybe we don't all know but i personally know well the the trap of the wikipedia oh this one's highlighted so let me follow the link and like pretty soon you've got 20 tabs open and you're reading through every single interesting thing and you end up somewhere very far, very many degrees separated from where you started, right? Yeah. So um, one thing I do is, yeah, is just set a time limit. Like, okay, today I'm going to research, you know, all these different things. Tomorrow I'm going to go back to my outline and actually work on the story. Um, the other is because often, you know, while you're writing it, you'll suddenly be like, I want this to happen. Can this actually happen, right? Um, or, you know, not even directly with science, but like, even with settings, like I have this set in a real place. I wonder if the buildings actually look like they do in my head. Um, I will often put like a bracketed placeholder and just put check this in all capital letters so I can go back and find it later, uh, so that I can keep with the flow of the writing. And then if I go back and research and realize that no, it can't work this way, then, you know, on revision, I can go back and fix it. Because usually, again, I want the science and the technology to serve the story, not the other way around. I'm not writing a nonfiction book. So you can always find a way, is my opinion, to make the technology or the science go in the direction that you want. You just have to find something plausible. And so it's more important, I think, to get the story down and then go back and and fix the details later. And then, of course, there's the um, just outsource it. 
like, like you said, call up uh, an expert and spend, you know, half an hour to an hour talking to them about it. In the book I'm writing right now, there's a lot of sailing around the ocean on Earth. And I don't know anything about sailing. I have been on a sailboat twice in my life. And so um, so I talked to a couple of people who are sailing enthusiasts, and that was really fun. And it keeps you automatically time limited because you're, you're taking up someone else's time mm-hmm. for free. And so you don't want to have them, even if they're enthusiastic, you don't want to take up half their day. So, you know, the conversation ends at a certain point. You have your notes and, and you go from there. Yeah. And that that's a great point. Um I've found that people people like to talk about... <laughs> so when I started I should be writing, I was worried that I couldn't get any authors to talk to me because well, who knew what a podcast was at the time? I was a nobody doing a writing show, but then I found out that authors like to talk about themselves like most people. And um you know, I I had I think one person turn me down for a reason other than I can't fit it into my schedule, but, um, it's, it's, and people love the idea that they're being interviewed for their expertise on a subject that they're obviously passionate about. And you just got to remember to put them in your acknowledgements. So, um, yeah, I've, t- I, I contacted a friend of mine whose spouse does metalworking for a small bit of station eternity because I needed to know all about gold melting and so I talked to an expert about that specifically because I wanted that to be correct but um (laughs) but yeah talking to experts is good it's like Ursula Vernon has like every weird scientist in the world on her Twitter and so she'll just like call out there like I forget what frog biologists are called but she knows the word and she'll just yell hey anybody here any of you frog people, only she says it more scientifically, know about X. And, like, she'll get 17 replies. And it just... you They're they are out there. You can find them without a lot of tro- trouble. Herpetologist, yes. thank you, Valerie. <laughs> yes, for sure. And if you don't have them conveniently on your Twitter feed, um, academics especially, I have found that you know, if you find papers or articles about them, um, they are all very, very publicly listed on their university's web pages. And they are very happy, usually, for you to email them and be like, can you tell me about your expertise? And they'll just be like, yes, please. <laughs> yeah, you just need to, you know, I'd think this was common sense. But just in case, you know, say who you are, say you're working on a book, say you would like to talk to them about these things and say how much time you're expecting to ask of them. And then if they're decent people and not too stressed out, they should probably say yes. Mm-hmm. Um, we have some speaking. questions in chat. Uh, Premi wants to know, is there a favorite piece of research or something really interesting that you found and put into the book? Yes. I'm, and I'm going to read it out of the book just to make sure I get it right. Cause it's uh, a rare human condition called genome-wide uniparental disomy. And uh, this is such a fascinating thing (laughs) to me when I learned about it. Um, I don't even remember, I'm trying to remember how I came across it. And I think what I was, oh, that's right. I was trying to figure out um, whether you could use 
um, whether you could take a female, human female XX chromosome and use it to uh, produce sperm. Like, because sperms come in XX and XY, right? So I'm like, there should be, you know, assuming you can generate sperm out of soup, you should be able to drop in uh, XX girl chromosomes into the sperm. So I thought at that point, like I wanted, um, I wanted a woman to be able to, you know, create sperm from her own chromosomes, not from her body, just from her DNA. And, um, and so I came across this, this phenomenon that it actually happens in nature where uh, normally, typically, you know, sperm meets eggs and you get half your genes from your mom and half your genes from your dad. Um, but in uniparental disomy, this funny thing happens where, and it mostly happens to female children, where they end up getting almost all their genes from the father and very little from comes across from the mother. And uh, I just thought that was, it was like some, it was a phenomenon I had never heard of, right? Like we don't, you don't get this in high school or even college biology typically where they're like, sometimes this very rare thing happens where 90% of your DNA comes from one parent instead of 50, 50. Uh, there's just, there's so many things in nature and biology like that, that I find just fascinating, you know, the stuff that's, that's uncommon, but totally realistic. And you, if you put it into a science fiction story without explaining it, people are going to assume you're BSing the whole thing, right? They're like, this yes. could never, like, what are you talking about? Like, it's always 50, 50, right? Just like, um, there's males and there's females. There's only ever XX and XY. It's mm -hmm. also not true. Yeah. Um, you can get XXY. You can get all kinds of interesting combinations. Um, so similarly with this, you know, I put the actual term in there in case, in case some, you know, one in a million reader is like, I'm no. a geneticist and I don't know, like, I'm a geneticist and I don't believe this could ever happen. I can be like, you can look that, you can Google that for yourself. It's a real thing. Mm -hmm. um, and then disappear hopefully down the rabbit hole of like really interesting things that can happen uh, shortly after conception. <laughs> wow. Um, Starvin wants to know from both of us, what's your institution Intuition, excuse me, for balancing hand wave versus getting the science right. What are you shooting for? Um, I'll let you take that one first. Yeah, you know, it's it's tough. And I often tell people, especially if you're not deep into the science, that less is more. Because the more detail you put in there without being 100% sure of it, the more likely you are to get something wrong and have a reader with expertise be dropped out of the story because they spot your fatal flaw, right? Um, just like what I was talking about. Somebody's gonna sit there and be like, that's not possible. Like what garbage, right? And there goes suspension of disbelief and then they're not in the moment anymore. So sometimes it's better just to be like, you know, we have this widget a thousand years from now and it does this. And like, just don't even go into why it works, you know? Um, let the reader figure it out if they happen to have knowledge in that domain. But if you have some knowledge or if you really have spent the time either talking to an expert or researching it and you feel comfortable with those details, then um, 
I think it really depends on the kind of writer you are. If you're like me and you have a, a highly geeky readership and fan base, or if that's what you're going for, if you're a new writer and that's the part of science fiction you want to inhabit, then um, by all means, put it in there because there are readers who eat it up, right? Like, including myself. I'm just like, this is really cool. I'm going to go look this up after I put this book down and find out more about the actual science or technology behind this to um, to think about it more and think about how you could actually build something like this or whether it's plausible. So where you choose to draw the line, I think, is is very personal on one hand and also circumstantial on the other hand. Yeah, I think um, the the it's been described as sort of an iceberg where if you choose the right thing to show you did a little bit of research, they'll assume you did all the rest of the research and take what you're giving them as rote. This is this is like the kind of thing, I mean, we joke about it, but it's true. There are gun enthusiasts who will be completely th thrown out of your story if you miss a, ref miss a reference to the proper caliber or the proper gun or something gun oriented. I don't even know. I don't know guns. But if if I did if I wanted to do guns in my story and I wanted to make it realistic, I would need to get at least, you know, the caliber right and the name right and all of that or else someone would speak up. But if I got the caliber right and didn't really talk much about the rest of the gun, the average person might just think that well, she knows what she's talking about. Because she got this one thing right. So it's a trick to find out what that one thing could be. But, um, you know, if you there, there are times when if you get one thing right, people will believe you on the rest of them. And I guess that's also a good advice on how to lie. But I don't want to encourage people to do that. Um, Arudanel that's said, what we do. We're professional liars. That is fair. <laughs> Uh, Rudinell says that's how 99% of Star Trek tech happened. The fans invented it after Roddenberry said that's just how it is because we got half an hour. The people who know how things work will figure it out for you. Interesting. I did not know that. And sometimes, I don't know, I, I feel embarrassed saying this, but I'll be honest. Sometimes it's just, I need X to happen in a story. So let me figure out what... I can cobble together from this research to make it sound plausible. And that I'm not, again, I'm not a scientist. That's the non-scientific way of looking at it. But, um, you know, we, we, we accept FTL technology and, you know, non-carbon based life forms. And so we will ex expand our suspension of disbelief a lot in science fiction. You just need to know what to give people to what to give them that they can anchor to and and hold their belief i think my metaphor got messed up there but anyway oh that's fair and i again i think it depends on the type of science fiction you're trying to write and you know the type of readership you are trying to please in a way right because yes. i love star wars yeah there's a whole lot of Star Wars that doesn't make any sense, right? Yeah. You know, midichlorians notwithstanding, like that's, and actually that's a perfect example of like over-explaining, right? The yeah. Force was much better before we started talking about 
midichlorians. Um, Because everybody, you know, people will always bring their own biases into a story. And we often talk about bias as a negative thing. But in this case, you know, they explained for themselves what the force is, whether it's God, whether it's some, you know, universal pantheistic thing, whether it's a new type of physics. Um, So you could let people bring their biases to the story and kind of fill in the blanks for themselves in a way that satisfied them. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to think more about it. You bring midichlorians into it, and especially if you're you're trying to retcon it, and everyone gets mad because they've already explained it for themselves. And so they're like, no, don't change the story, right? And I've written, I've written far future stuff where I don't try to explain anything, especially if it's like short story or flash length, right? It's yeah. like, you know, people are sending their brainwaves across space. Um, I'm not going to get into the details of how they did it. They just did it. And, um, and that can be fine because ultimately, if you make the story compelling enough, uh, everyone just wants to know what's going to happen to the characters. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, they will let you hand wave a lot. I forget where I read that, that um, somebody was saying that, you know, their goal as a genre writer, especially a science fiction writer, is to make the story so compelling that you don't see the plot holes until well after you've finished reading the story or the book. Like days later, you might be like, that doesn't make any sense. But when you're in it, you know, you're so caught up in it that, you gloss right over all these things. And that's always been my goal too. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. There, there, I mean, there are some plot holes in some major bestsellers, but no one cares because they're written in a way that just keep people reading. Right. Um, there, there's talk of being, so, of, of being correct in the gun caliber. Um, the bullet caliber is, is helpful to keep, to, ah, I'll just read it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Being something of a history buff about guns, says Ian. Making sure the caliber is right will go a long way. Thank you. Yeah, this, I, again, this is also why I, too, write softer science fiction. Because, frankly, my eyes tend to glaze over on the books that are super heavy with their sci-fi explanations. And I know there are people who love that stuff, but I don't. But... What I love about yours is you very clearly wrote character first. So even as you're explaining all of the weird uh, far future, not even far future, but future, you know, post-human things, is you did it from the point of view of people that you've already made us care about. And so framed in that way, it kept me reading. So that... Can you explain how to go about making it character specific when you're doing, for want of a better word, these info dumps? Yeah, I mean, I I think the best way is to remember why you're writing the story. Um, that it's, you know, assuming that it's about a person and not about the idea. If you want to write about an idea, you can write an essay or a blog post. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, you're writing a story, which usually is about one or more people. And so I try to be pretty ruthless in pruning out information that's not relevant to the story 
you know, even I, I come across so much cool research that never makes it into the book, mm-hmm. right? And I don't try to work everything in just because it's cool. Like I could, but I, I generally try to to keep things lean in that sense and try to keep the focus on the person. And the other thing, I, I don't know, I find um, delivering the information, right? There's always multiple ways of doing it, but if you're doing it from the perspective of the character and why the character is motivated to know this in the first place, then hopefully, you know, again, if the reader cares about the the character, they will also be vested along with the character in learning about some of these things. And so that's, that's one way to kind of deliver information is, is via the motive. Mm -hmm. Um, the other, though, I mean, like you said, there there are books and there are certain authors who have such massive followings of people who, especially in science fiction, I think, but even like thrillers, I'm thinking like the Tom Clancy fans, right? Mm-hmm. Who just, they just, you know, they are there for pages and pages of information about a particular type of vehicle or, you know, whatever, right? Um. So sometimes that can be your brand. Like if that's your thing and that's mm-hmm. what you love, then then do it. Um, in my case, you know, I prefer to keep the story focused on the character and to keep the reader drawn into a fast-paced plot so I don't stop to explain all the cool stuff, which has frustrated some of my readers because they, some of them actually want to know more about <laughs> things that work. They're like, like, you should explain this more. And I'm like, yeah, but then, you know, then you have the other people who are like, this has too many info dumps. So I try to strike that, that middle ground there as best as I can. Yeah. But I think sometimes you need to accept that there might be hand-waving going on. I'm thinking the the case of Anne McCaffrey. It's like once she got into the actual science behind the dragons, people are just like, that doesn't make sense. And then she wandered into the minefield of green dragon sexuality or the sexuality of green dragon writers, which just went just bad places. You can Google it if you want, but uh, it's like, you could have just left it. (laughs) It's the the further you, you, she thought she was trying to explain and really she was just kind of digging a hole. Like how, how can they keep those massive dragons alive? There, there aren't that many sheep in the world. And (laughs) yeah. So, uh, yeah. yes, and I, I think this is why fantasy is always uh, more popular than science fiction, because you're allowed to, you know, in fantasy, you're not just allowed, you're, you're expected to kind of turn that part of your brain off, because, mm-hmm. because magic, right? Like, that, that's, that's the end of it. Yeah. We don't need to think about it any more than because magic. And so we can make up whatever rules we want, because magic. You just have to follow the rules. Yeah, I just have to follow the rules. Yeah. Well, I have taken an hour of your time, Divya. Um, is there anything else you want uh, you want to tell our viewers or listeners or bring up um, anything I didn't ask? Oh, anything you didn't ask on this particular topic? No, just any topic. Of research holes? No, <laughs> research you, your holes. book, anything you want to talk about? Um, I will say that I'm currently uh, doing a giveaway of signed um, art cards, like 4 by 9 art cards, which I don't have handy to show, of um, these two amazing people and their artwork. 
Um, if you look me up on any of my socials, I think I'm on, I'm on everything except TikTok, uh, cause I can't do TikTok for neurological reasons right now, but I'm on Twitter as at Divya's tweets. I'm on Mastodon as SB Divya, Instagram as SB Divya author. Um, and it's very simple. I just want you to post a picture of the book or the ebook if you have it and tag me and I will be very, very happy to send you a signed art card of either Jayanti or Vaha. Excellent. Uh, how long oh, is this going on? Uh, until I run out of art cards. <laughs> and a lot. <laughs> okay. Um, is there a link to the book? I've got links to... Um... I've got links to Divya's homepage. Uh, are, there, are there links to the books on your homepage? Yes, for yes. sure. I think there's links to my Twitter on there. Okay. I should probably see about adding a Mastodon. And, or and you Instagram could search links. M-E-R-U yeah. in um, bookshop.org or Amazon or something. Yes, uh, to buy Thank it. you. Kids are asleep. Um, so, yeah... It's we already said where to find you, sbdivia.com. Um, and if you would like to follow me, uh, you can find out more about me at merverse.com and email me questions about um, anything the writing, my work, podcasting, whatever, uh, mightymer at gmail.com. And um, yeah, there's lots of places I am online, but that's the best place that they're all kind of grouped together. I'm losing my words today. I don't know. Um, but thank you so much, Divya, and uh, hopefully have you on when your next book comes out. Yay! Thank you for having me. And and it's been great guys. hanging out with everyone. Yeah, we miss you, man. Um, yeah, and we'll see you next time, and you should be writing. I Should Be Writing is available to you under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Theme music by John Anilio. Art by Numbers Ninja. Production by Summer Brooks. And hosting by Libsyn. Find all of this information and more at merverse.com. And remember, we can't do this without you. Thanks for your support. Doctor Who. Yeah, I'm sitting home watching Doctor Who.